Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now, let's dive in without further ado. Soil conservation is something you have to be diligent about all the time because you don't know when that weather event is going to come along that, that washes or blows away a lot of soil. And I think we, you know, we just come at it from these personal experiences and understanding that the topsoil is where the value is in, a, in most properties. And, um, and so you have to keep it in place at the very least if you're going to uh, maintain value or appreciate value. We, we, don't, we don't make any false promises that we're going to build the topsoil dramatically over a 10-year period, but we're going to do our best to keep the topsoil in place. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have on Scott Day, who is a no-till farmer in Manitoba. Scott is currently the director of agronomy for Fall Line Capital as well. Um, Fall Line invests in farmland across the USA, as well as new ag technologies around the world. Um, Fall Line takes a very active role in the management of all of their investments. And Scott has a direct farming experience, and not only across North America, um, but as we said, Canada, Australia, Europe, and former Soviet Union. Scott Day, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So Scott, um, said, a, said a few words there. Um, there's a lot going on. Can you rewind the clock for us a little bit and just tell us like how you got into what you're doing now? Right, yeah. I guess... Uh, <laughs> Going back to the beginning, when I got out of university, I did some traveling and worked on farms in Ireland and in Australia and kind of had the travel bug, bug, the international bug. And then when I got back to Canada, I didn't really have much of a plan. And I ended up buying some the neighbor's farm in the morning and was offered an extension job as an ag rep or a county agent in the afternoon. So that day, way back in 1989, I started my life as having two careers in agriculture. And I've always had that since that time. So I was an ag rep, uh, which is like a county agent in the United States. Then I was a like a regional agronomist, but then I uh, was managing a research farm, an applied research farm for the Manitoba government. All the time over that 23, 24 years, I was also fa- farming with my family. And during that time uh, with the research farm, I ended up having opportunities to speak in other countries about wh- how we no-till in Western Canada and how we incorporate genetically modified crops into those no-till systems, uh, predominantly Roundup Ready and Liberty Link canola. And uh, while I was speaking in Australia about this subject, I met another farmer from Iowa who was a precision ag expert, who was a, a brilliant guy that had taken a lot of learnings from biomedic- biomedical engineering and, and aeronautical engineering and applied it to his farm. So he was the first farmer to ever use an auto steer tractor, the first farmer to ever incorporate sectional control. And we became friends uh, from our speaking tour in Australia. And then in 2011, uh, he and another friend from university decided to create this company called Fall Line Capital, where we were focused on farmland acquisition, development and management, all with a thesis of soil conservation. And um, and I was one of the first employees asked to join the company. And I was kind of comfortable where I was. I liked farming with my family and running this farm, research farm for the government in my neighborhood. And so I wasn't 
I wasn't really looking to change careers, but they offered me this opportunity to live and farm, uh, continue to live and farm in Manitoba in the summertime and live in San Francisco in the wintertime where our head office is. So I'll be making that journey in the next few weeks to spend the winter in San Francisco, and it'll be the 12th year, I think, or uh, yeah, 12th or 13th year of, uh, of, of me having this kind of uh, migration, I guess, or, or the ultimate snowbird where I travel and work in the, in the U.S. But I work for the company full time, and when I'm in Manitoba in the summertime, I get to our properties, our farmland in, in the northern U.S. easily by driving. And then I'm not far from Minot, North Dakota, which allows me to fly to most places in the U.S. as fast or, or as efficient and cheaper than when I live in San Francisco. So it hasn't been a big liability, even though I'm living in very rural central Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, it sounds like you are the ultimate snowbird. And you're also in Montana right now. So you're just traveling all over the place. You get kind of both, best yeah. of both worlds. Yeah, we... <clears throat> Yeah, we have farms in Montana. We had farms in Wisconsin. We recently sold them, and uh, but we have, you know, we have a fund for purchasing new fund farms now. We've we've had a series of funds that were deployed, and now we're exiting out of those farms because the, the time frame is coming to an end to give the money back to the investors. Uh, we have a large farm in Montana that a few minutes ago I was showing to a prospective buyer. It's it's about 7,000 acres, 3,000 acres irrigated uh, right along the Yellowstone. It's a beautiful farm. It's a little big for local uh, farmers, but um, we're in the process of selling it. So that's what I'm doing today, where next week I'm off to Agrotechnica to work on the ag tech side of things, support some of our tech investments at that giant egg show in Germany and look for new opportunities as well. So it, it's a, you know, I, I do a job here that I think a thousand farmers from the northern prairies could probably do you know that they give a perspective on what it's like to farm in these conditions i'm just the lucky one that gets to do this but it is a fascinating job where i get to you know look at farms and buy farms and and do that side of it and then also on the ag tech and and have input and relevance to these companies that are really amazing but they don't necessarily have connection to to the producer directly and i get to play that role and i i generally am am supporting our team within the company that's managing farmland and acquiring farmland and then also on the ag tech I'm, i try and support both sides as much as possible mm-hmm. all the but while it sounds like farming yeah. in my spare time <laughs> yeah farming up truck, in canada or my office is at this yeah the tractor and the truck are my offices uh, when i'm when i'm north of the border and maybe Sounds just a nice. little bit about the farm in Canada. Yeah, it, it's good. It keeps you really busy, but um, kind of used to this headset now. But uh, maybe just to share a little bit about the farm in Canada. My, my yeah. family's been there a long time. Uh, great grandfather's, my grandfather's grandfather was first in the area. We, we kind of been farming there since Ag opened up there uh, 120 years ago. And our farm was a... a a livestock, um, primarily a hog operation in grain, until I started to, you know, be be more involved with the farm and we expanded the grain side of it. Now it's just a grain farm. Uh, I I try and keep it as simple as possible to avoid the distractions that come with complicated grain farms. But we're in an area where anything seems to be possible. We we've grown sunflowers and soybeans and dry beans and flax and oats and winter wheat and fall rye and all those crops have been on our farm. Our neighbors are growing grain corn now, um, but we are like a lot of farms in Western Canada now. We're focused on wheat, canola, and 
and then whatever comes in third or fourth, which is barley or oats or peas. So, um, uh, and we've been no-tilling since the early 90s. When I first started getting involved with farming, I was asked to be part of the Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Group, which was one of the early pioneers in no-till. A lot of groups in the U.S. have, have used what they learned from, from our group to become a, a group, whether it's the no-till on the plains or, or the National No-Till Convention or the groups in, in the Palouse, they all had connections to us way back in the 90s. When I was asked to join, I think I was 23 or 24, and I said, well, we're not a no-till operation. And they, the, the guys that asked me were guys I had a great deal of respect for. They were kind of like my heroes. And they said, don't worry, you will be a no-till farmer. <laughs> and that's, that's, how it, that's how it kind of, and that's obviously part of the role I'm playing here with Fall Line as we try and manage all of our farms, no matter where they're located, with a focus on soil conservation. You know, we, we're practical, we have experience in this, so we're going to require cover crops in areas where they're practical, but we're not going to require cover crops everywhere. We're going to require certain um, tillage reductions in areas we know is possible, but we don't require it everywhere. Like, we, we have a practical approach to this, but our investors are expecting us to manage our manage the farms and keeping the topsoil in place or even, you know, increasing the value of the topsoil because that's ultimately what they've invested in. And uh, it doesn't matter, you know, the definitions of all these other methods and systems. If you're focused on preserving the topsoil, then that's how you preserve the asset. And uh, so that's that's partly, I guess, what I, what I brought to the company was that experience. Also, in the extension side of it as well, not just as the operator, but that was a big part of my message as an extension agent for the government and even within the research farm was always focused on no-till and adapting new crops into no-till systems that we thought were not really possible before. I was one of one of the earlier adopters of no-till in dried bean production and Pintos, Blacks, and Navies. And, and mm -hmm. we showed that that was possible in a no-till situation. Sunflowers as well, which we always thought had to be row cropped and we were able to get that um, established in no-till so okay can you walk us through what the general process looks like for fall line and i'm wondering like from a farmer perspective you know if they're interested in either working with farm fall line or if they see a fall line property next to them and understand what they're doing just to get a general broad overview of that process yeah we're we're uh our fund is our funds have been real estate investment trusts, so our investors get certain benefits from that structure, but that prevents us from operating the farms outright. So we need okay. to work with local farmers to, to operate the farms. We want to be involved in the management as much as practical or, or as useful, but we're going to be working with local producers to operate those farms. And um, often we've been given opportunities to buy properties from the local community from those farmers that want to operate that oops, want to operate that farm and then have uh, uh, brought it to us and then we you know we have our own diligence process and and we try and keep things as uh, you know as, as clear and formal as possible but you know they'll bring us a property we'll look at it if it's interesting we'll buy it and they'll have an opportunity to rent it back to us so or rent it back from us um other other times we've had 
um, you know, we I guess we've been out there long enough that a lot of people that are in the land market know that we're uh, a cash buyer, a serious investor, long-term commitment, local community commitment, and they'll bring us properties because we're the right type of owner for that property. Um, we like properties that we can add value to. So we've done a lot of this farm in Montana is a, you know, we developed a lot of the irrigation on this property that goes on to rangeland that had been rangeland eight years ago. Um, and, and in farms in the South, the same way we developed irrigation farms there, other areas like Wisconsin, we put in a lot of tile drainage and improved properties there. Um, we developed irrigation farms in the Pacific Northwest. So that's, part, you know, we're, People see a property that has great potential, but needs a, a commitment from an owner that's going to create, you know, create the development to make it a great farm. We're we're one of those investors. Okay, and so and you we, come in and we, yeah, we have, yeah, we have generally long-term relationships with our tenants, um, and we do have rules as far as these specifics to to do with crop rotation crop cover, soil cover, that sort of thing. But like I said, they're they're generally designed to what's most practical and appropriate for a region rather than some. Yeah, in fact, every farm probably has a, some different aspects in its lease, regardless of, of whether it's in the same part of the state or, or whatever. We, we make specific leases for each farm. Yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, I think that comes from us coming from agriculture that you know that there's always uh, idiosyncrasies per farm that you need to uh, either highlight or address or accommodate. Yeah, indeed. Every, every farm is much different, even just across the road. Um, so you're essentially operating, you come in and buy land that's perhaps undervalued, building it back up for that, building the topsoil back o- over the long term. What is the investment horizon that Fallland looks for? Is that five years, ten years? Well, we had different. We've had different funds that have had different time frames associated with it. Uh, but this current fund, we're looking at a, like a ten-year ownership period at the minimum. That'll be flexible as you get to the end. But we're we're looking at a, you know, from the time you buy it to the time you're looking to sell it. It's 10 years. I, I will add that we have sold a number of our farms that we purchased at the beginning of, the, of our, you know, of, of the 11 year history of the company. And uh, a number of them have gone to our tenants or our neighbors. Um, some have gone to other institutional buyers, but quite a few of our farms, like in Montana, all the farms we sold so far have gone to our, our tenants or our neighbors. And that's always gratifying to see that the people that know your farm the best is the one that's putting the highest value on it um so we we have just there's no set plan of who it's going to be sold to in 10 years it's going to be whoever the most appropriate or highest bidder is at that time mm-hmm. okay yeah it makes a lot of sense and always nice when you can build build the value in and then flip it back right into the community um where it's sitting that's yeah that's got to be a good feeling rewarding yeah, it isn't like it. We're, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors to maximize, maximize value. It's just worked out really well that in some cases, that maximum value has been seen by the people we are working with already or our neighbors in that community. And um, 
and you know what's happening today is you have properties farms that are are really large our farm in montana is is a, is a big farm and and we've bought some large farms and then have broke it up and made it available to to more than one tenant in a in an area you know a large farm in louisiana went uh, went to four different tenants which is always best for the community and probably the long-term value of a property as well but um we we always do things with um you know maximizing value of the farm but looking at it from a long-term perspective rather than always a, an annual rate of return which is obviously important as well but we have this kind of I guess experience it, to be able to look at farmland anywhere and, and think about it over a ten-year period rather than just an uh, annual rate of return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see a lot of cor- public corporations now being so driven by short-term profits, quarterly results, annually, and there's good and bad to it. Um, but a lot of it can. Let's just say it's right. the long-term well, incentives you- aren't there. Yeah, Sometimes. and you have many regions where where ten years in farming, you're going to have some really bad years, and you you know you got to work with the people that know the farm well. You go, you have to kind of work through those things for the long term value to be maximized. If you were switch switching tenants on a regular basis, just chasing whatever the highest money is, um, that that's going to that's not going to work out in the long term. Um, so we've we've been I think we've been quite patient with most of our tenants in, in we have really high retention and uh, we've been able to work through certain scenarios that often are not a fault of the, of the producer, but you know, this farm in Montana had a big hailstorm this year. These things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things definitely do happen. Scott, why is soil conservation one of the driving pillars behind fall line? It seems obvious, well, but can you just walk us through the thinking? Well, it's, it's you know, I guess it's been a passion of mine on the prairies, the northern plains. You know, you have a narrow, narrow layer of topsoil that took since the glacier to produce. So 10,000 years, and it's only a few inches deep. And so, you know, you you can do the right thing for nine years and then lose it all in a in a you know two hour thunderstorm and so soil conservation is something you have to be diligent about all the time because you don't know when that weather event is going to come along that that washes or blows away a lot of soil and i think we you know we just come at it from these personal experiences and understanding that the topsoil is where the value is in in most properties and um and so you have to keep it in place at the very least if you're going to uh, maintain value or appreciate value. We we don't we don't make any false promises that we're going to build the topsoil dramatically over a 10-year period, but we're going to do our best to keep the topsoil in place. And we do have farms that are potato operations in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, where you have to till the land, but there is a requirement of a cover crop immediately after the potatoes have been harvested. And so it comes back to us being practical about these things. And then our investors are, you know, institutions, individuals that are not usually very knowledgeable about agriculture, but want to do the right thing. And they could, you know, they were being distracted by other things, uh, other 
I say fads within agriculture, uh, but you know, you get 10 minutes of their attention and you explain that, okay, we're going to focus on protecting the topsoil. Uh, they can buy into that. And then that becomes part of uh, why, why they're investing in us, uh, not just our own personal conviction to, to soil conservation. And now, you know, you have, that wasn't, in place when we started, but you have this whole ESG, carbon economy, those sort of things that go along with soil conservation. And we, we, you know, we're not building a thesis on those markets, but we're definitely in the right direction for satisfying people that are interested in that or wanting to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely becoming a more mature market. I think they've been doing, you know, the carbon economy is starting well. California's in the States has been probably the longest at it than Washington. Um, yeah, it's up and coming, but you guys are setting yourself up to, to help people along in that process. Right. And we do that. We're, we're looking at that through, um, through a specific lens of, of ESG and, and the carbon markets, even with our ag tech investments as well. So, like I said, it's, it's still focused on soil conservation and these other things are coming along at the right time to support that, but it's not the, the basis of, of our approach is still protecting the soil, the topsoil. Mm -hmm. What type of regenerative practices do you guys use? I know you, you've mentioned a few times you're using practical solutions. It's not a one, one size fits all, but are there a few go-to um, regenerative ag solutions that you guys are proponents of? Right. I would say we, you know, we're not really hung up on that definition because that's kind of an ambiguous thing in certain areas as to what that really means. But we're, you know, we, we have to, we want to work with the right tenants that are willing to go on this journey with us. And that's part of, I guess, uh, part of our okay. work ahead of time is picking. And, you know, we've, we've worked with farmers that were not into reduced tillage and not, uh, really focused on the things we wanted to implement, but they wanted to learn together with us. And, uh, and you know, it's easier picking one that knows it, but if we have someone that's willing to make those changes, that's gratifying and effective as well. On the regenerative side of things, we, I, I think for the most part, we're looking at um, trying to keep diversity in our crop rotations. We're, I think we're the only canola producer, our farmers are only canola producers in Wisconsin, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Although we didn't have a lot of production, we, we've encouraged that. We had some pea production in the south, uh, but our, our canola production in north uh, central uh, Wisconsin's actually been pretty good. And and then cover crops, wherever, wherever they're uh, applicable or practical. Like we don't require a cover crop in Montana because there's just very little opportunity for that to work. Uh, there's not enough time. But on the other hand, our farmers are generally uh, not tilling like they're they're no-tilling corn and and even though it's irrigated they're they're using very little tillage or, or just uh, you know small um surface till or something prior to seeding so that's we, we would not want to see moldboard plow on our montana farms uh we would not like to see plowing on any of our farms but we are practical about the deep south where they need to bed rows and that sort of thing um but we also require would like to see cover crops in the south wherever possible, even in those areas where it's not common. Um, and then, like I mentioned, 
with potatoes in the Pacific Northwest, we want to see a cover crop after a field mm-hmm. that's been heavily tilled or heavily like a potato field that's been um, harvested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of those co- cover crops that are used? Best for potatoes specifically. Well, I think the yeah, you're looking at um, that depends on the region. So you're looking at a, a probably rye being consistent through much of the, the cover crop mix across our farms or our portfolio. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, you'll also see winter triticale. You'll see uh, peas to some degree. We're we're not, I guess we're we're not um, focused on really complicated cover crop mixes. Um, we once again we're coming back to holding the soil in place as opposed to creating a, a, a jungle of things. And so um, there, there's winter wheat is also used a bit, um, and we've used vetches in some areas, but we don't get really complicated with our cover crop mixes. And it's also what's available, what's practical from an economic standpoint, um, and uh, and so that varies a lot within the regions. Mm-hmm. The rye peas, yeah, winter wheat, yeah. but really just keeping it simple. And probably not paying overpaying right. for for it when it doesn't make sense. Yeah, we're, you know, cover crops from my standpoint, coming from an area that has a very short season, cover crops in general work well where there's excess resources in the system. So if you have excess time, if you have excess moisture, if you have excess nutrients, cover crops make good sense. But if you don't have those things, then you got to be really specific on how they are deployed and also what the mixes are. Now we don't own any farms in the core of the corn belt where you know you have pretty good conditions year in and year out you're out. And if, if we're in that area we might look at cover crops that were more complicated with, with the radish and, and a bunch of other things, sun hemp and those sort of things. But we're in areas where we're trying to keep the soil in place as far as that's the goal as opposed to all these other things that are claimed for these complicated mixes or more diverse mixes. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's designed specifically for that area, for that reason of, of uh, protecting the soil. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, partly why we've been sense. really encouraged, encouraged winter cropping in, in the South uh, as, as instead of a cover crop, you're growing a crop that you generate revenue with. So we've looked at Carinata, we've looked at obviously canola, winter peas, winter wheat is the obvious one, but you know winter wheat goes a little bit into the spring seeding system, compromising your summer crop. Uh, we would love to have uh, a commercial crop that protects our soil in the off season, as opposed to a crop that you simply destroy and plant your summer crop in. So we're we've still been working on that. Any ideas on what and with that would that be? Comes markets, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, the brassicas are great, but we need markets for those. And, you know, there is this recent announcement to Bungie and uh, and Corteva um, dedicating some resources to, to developing brassica winter crops for the south. I think the potential is great. It, it seems to work from an agronomic standpoint. Not fantastic. We're still figuring that out. But if the market is there, then that's... The, that, that's the biggest obstacle to overcome. I don't think many of the other agronomic issues are as big as the fact that it's 
it's hard to market those crops in that region. Whereas, you know, up here I have a dozen choices where I can draw, sell canola for um, processing locally, and then it also goes to Europe or, or Japan. Um, but down there, with there being like the market hasn't got to a critical mass yet to create an, a, a local market, and it's been attempted in the past for other reasons, but never really fully executed. Now you have uh, the biofuel side of things, where brassicas produce a, a, an excellent uh, jet fuel. And uh, so you have that added market beyond the human food side of it or, or just the meal for livestock feed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit of a chicken and chicken before the egg or egg before the chicken yeah. problem. Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, in a way for me, it's not a novel crop. It's nothing new. This is an anchor of our farming system in the Northern Plains. Um, and and so um, that side of it is, is not a mystery. It's it's more the marketing side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scott, if you don't mind, can you walk us through fall line? The, you know, the ag tech portion of it, we've been talking about soil conservation, the land acquisition piece of this um, for the last few minutes. But this ag tech piece, can you walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, we, we were when we started, we were focused on the farmland side of things and a small component of the farmland fund was set aside for ag tech investments and we were we are based in in essentially silicon valley because the the other founding partner the one that i wasn't as familiar with he was a former uh tech fund manager this was his home this is where he was based so that's how we ended up there and uh and then it kind of made it was it was an easy transition to getting involved in tech investing when you were already located in Silicon Valley. So we're, we're investors in some of the famous ag tech that comes out of the Bay Area, um, Planet Labs, uh, Impossible Foods. Uh, we were investor in granular farm management software. Um, we're investor in Sound Egg and, and uh, Trace Genomics. These are all Bay Area companies. And then Ripple Foods as well. Um, and the, the food ones, both Impossible and Ripple, they, they were obviously uh, interesting investments, but our conviction came from the, our farms possibly being the suppliers of protein to those companies. So early on, our farmers in Montana were the ones that supplied the yellow peas to Ripple that they made the milk from. And Impossible, we were our farms were going to be a support source of the heme protein that is used to make the burger. Um, but in the end, uh, you know, it's, it's, they, they figured out other ways to source those proteins. But that was partly where that that was coming from you know now mm -hmm. we have uh, added capacity to our to our team and uh you know we we've, we've got a lot of experience in this field now and we've invested in technology uh, all over the place we we have three investments based in israel we have one that that's in france that's kind of moving their operations to the u.s we have investments in south america and we have uh, an investment that's kind of canadian based but has an office in the u.s as well and um, we look at anything that's relatively early stage that's involved in, in ag or food production. And we used to concentrate on ag that was kind of connected to our farms, you know, like row crop farms. But now mm -hmm. we have, uh, I guess, enough experience to, to look at virtually anything that is, has, an, has, has a significant impact on agriculture, even livestock, uh, aquaculture, indoor ag. We've looked at technologies in those spaces as well. But for now, we have about 35 
portfolio of companies. Um, and they they range across a, from biotech to to robotic weeding systems, to drone spraying systems, to uh, microbial discovery platforms, that sort of thing. Pretty broad range of, of companies. And mm -hmm. we tend to be a, 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 we're an early investor, but we tend to uh, take a significant position with these companies and have some sort of um, board seat or influence on the companies. So they become a part of our, they, they become a part of our network like our farms are, where we're helping them make introductions, do research. Our farms have obviously played a role in evaluating or having input for some of this technology, as has our farmers. And so we, we're not passive investors in the ag side and we're not passive investors in the ag tech. We're active investors. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great because you get to leverage the, the experience level that you guys bring to the table. You are still farming with your father in Canada. And so you're really able to bridge that gap between the theory of a potential new ag tech and the practical side of it. Yeah, it's for me, it's been kind of surprising that I would have some sort of, I don't know, uh, impact on these companies because I'm, I'm not, that's just not where I'm from. But there is often this disconnect between what they're developing and doing and the practical side of who's using it. And, you know, all of the farmers within our farmland network can play that same role. And some of the others within our team have that ability as well. It makes us kind of unique in the world of ag tech investing, where we have this farmland side of it as well. So we can quickly give opinions about products and, and systems just based on what we would know on our own farms or, or the farms within our portfolio. I think that's helped us have a, a, a very, I, I would say, robust portfolio where we haven't lost a lot of companies, even though we're early stage you know, venture firms. Many of our companies have, uh, well, almost all of our companies have stayed alive right through to till now. We we have a very difficult investing environment right now. There's not a lot of money for these next stages in a company to get them to commercial uh, success, and and that there will be casualties from that. Yeah, interesting time in the capital markets right now. To yeah, say the least. Well, it, it seems there's always interesting times, but right now, such a dramatic change from where it was two years ago. And, you know, it's it's all this other money that got sucked out of the system that would have gone to these more tangible investments, uh, you know, and and so that, that just had a ripple effect through everything. And almost without exception, our ag tech investments have done what they said they were going to do. Like we invested in them to do this, to develop this thing, or and almost all of them have done that. It's just getting it to the next stage is going to be a challenge, and um, and so you know we've we've built capacity in our in our fund to make sure there is follow up, but we can't do it alone with these companies. So uh, we know that there will be some casualties going forward. Mm -hmm. Part of the business. So Scott, as we mm -hmm. wrap up here, what are you most looking forward to? In the, in the future, when you think about, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, you see things coming down the pipe, you're building this topsoil back into these farmlands, and you're, in some cases, you know, I love the fact that you mentioned you're, you know, buying these, adding value back into the topsoil, but then diversifying them or splitting them up into smaller farmers, 
so they can continue farming in those communities, which is really cool. But what are you excited about in the future? Yeah, uh, once again, we're doing this from the standpoint of what we think the best value is coming out of the farm. We're not doing this yeah. purely because we want to, you know, we it, it's great it works out that way. And it it's because we can look at it over a long time frame and see that that's probably where the best value comes from. Um, but from for me today, you know, I'm kind of getting old in the tooth. There is a series of tech investments that we've made that are going to profoundly change agriculture. Um, and whether there are companies or not, we don't know for sure. But we know this technology will change ag. So this whole world of, of protein-based pesticides and, and plant um, stimulants. So one of our companies has just been given an EPA review, review approval for an RNA-based insecticide. This is the first RNA pesticide of any type that's been given that green light to be evaluated. Well, this opens the door to a whole new world of crop protection. And this will impact soil conservation. You know, this will impact um, customer comfort and, and this will impact the carbon market and all these 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 protein based pesticides, whether it's a peptide or a micropeptide or an RNA product or whatever, these are simply designer proteins that attack very specific things in very effective ways under a broad range of conditions, and they're not that expensive. We'll see what they cost at the retail level, but to produce them, it's not it's not a, a, a huge obstacle. So you'll be able to kill your Roundup-resistant weeds with, with a protein powder, let's say, that's not expensive at all. You know, we this could this could be profound from the the cost of production, but also allowing no-till to occur in areas where it had, you know, maybe had been successful and went backwards because of weed control issues or pest control issues. So that <clears throat> there's this whole biotech field of of this of, of of a new generation of pesticides that have very little impact on anything but that what they're targeting. Like it won't affect it won't affect butterflies or honeybees or anything unless they build a target to kill honeybees or butterflies. And so that's that's a big shift. And then with that, you have all kinds of application technologies that are coming along. Two of our companies are sprayer drone companies that have progressed very, very quickly because they made these drones to be sprayers from the ground up. So the one company is at, you know, applying a product at around 100 acres an hour. Like they're going to be very competitive to, a, you know, a regular high clearance sprayer with water volumes that are, you know, close to aerial application. Well, that's going to change how we apply stuff. You know, we're, we can spot spray, we can spray in many different conditions now because we got our own little, you know, drone. They're much mm -hmm. less expensive. I, I think that will be a profound change in crop protection and will tie into soil conservation as well. And uh, and so I see this and, there, you know, I could go on about this tech stuff because it's, it's all really cool. But th these things are allowing us to be more effective, more efficient for less money. And many of them have an, a potential impact on soil conservation as well. We're an investor in a company called Lithos, which is enhanced rock weathering. And so you, it's basalt that's crushed. You apply it on your farm. It works, this, it, it, it mitigates or neutralizes pH, so it acts like lime in that regard. But the basalt 
reacts with carbonic acid in rainwater and creates a carbonate, which is a permanent storage of carbon. So now instead of applying whatever you do to, you know, improve your pH, which is usually a lot, instead of doing that, you apply this product and you um, you get some other nutrient benefits, you get a neutralized pH, and you get access to the permanent core carbon storage market, not the sequestering market, but the permanent storage market. And, uh, you know, th that's a pretty simple um, chemistry <laughs> that mm -hmm. is now has a possibility of changing farmland as well. So. Those are three really big things. The, the sprayer drone is going to be, I mean, all of those are profound. Um, but I, right now I'm just imagining these sprayer drones and what they even look like. Um, yeah. Scott, thank you so much for I, I your will time say today. The, the, oh, okay. yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, you go ahead. I was gonna, well, the most, yeah, I, I would say right now though, that the most right now today, the most exciting area is, is machine vision AI. So you have that ability to, to monitor things review things at a vision level that's greater than we as humans look at. Like this isn't hyperspectral imaging or infrared or anything. This is just being able to look at, well, there's cameras that'll look at the feces of a chicken in the barn and that'll be how you adjust medication and feeding. And then there's cameras that monitor the chicken's head and that will automatically adjust the ventilation just because it, it they can build um, so much so much data goes into these things that now can be processed with algorithms that create very meaningful management outputs and data decisions. And that'll be part of how these drones work. You know, you see, see, and spray. This is going to get to be very, very precise. This is, you know, like everything in tech, it's going to get much better than what we're dealing with right now. So that when that drone flies the crop, it sees every plant individually at 20 miles an hour and knows exactly what to do. And that'll come from these exponential leaps that we're seeing in artificial intelligence. And um, and I think that is uh, is going to have a profound effect that I, I, you know, I can't even imagine some of these applications, but in the last few months, um, new pop, you know, new startups have been coming forward with these machine learning uh, algorithms where the camera really doesn't matter. It's just the ability to process the image. So our last investment is in a autonomous kit that uses a standard camera, but processes image so quickly that that camera creates an autonomy uh, management direction system for whatever you plug it into. So you can create autonomy oh, wow. in areas where GPS doesn't work. And um, and so we, you know, we just are seeing a lot of uh, new innovation in that space. And it's one of these things that's going to progress rapidly beyond what our imagination was a year or two ago. What a wild time to be an ag. Or it's always in been interesting. In it's just, yeah. Yeah. But it seems it's getting to be uh, exceptional right now. Mm -hmm. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I have learned a ton today and appreciate you walking us through a little bit more deep dive into fall line capital, you know, your background history, why soil isn't so important. Um, is there, what's one thing you'd like to leave us with today? If you could pick out, pick all the things, but what's, what's a hot topic on your mind? Oh, 
Well, I, I don't know. I, I think in, in a way you come back to the fundamentals of good soil always holds its value. So you got to hold the good soil in place. And, um, and so technologies that support that, management systems that support that will, will probably always maximize value uh, for the farmer or the person that owns the land or, or the company that's wanting to do something specific. So, um, you know, as I've been involved with ag for close to 40 years now, um, it comes back to some of these basics all the time. Quality water, efficient use of inputs, quality soil, those things will always hold value. So preserving that, making that more efficient is what kind of is the key to, to moving forward and, and uh, uh, you know, growing the industry. Mm-hmm. Focus on the fundamentals. Yeah. yeah, don't not necessarily focus, but don't forget about them. You know, you don't forget about them. Yeah. Ways, yeah, you can't make silk purses out of sow's ears in a lot of cases, no matter what they tell you. <laughs> Can try. It's probably just not going to turn out very well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Scott, where can people get a hold of you to learn more about you and what you do? I think we're fairly easy search on. Line Capital. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, we have a series of, of podcasts, not to be competitive to yours, Casey, but <laughs> on our website with the with the leaders and founders of our ag tech companies, which are um, I've listened to them recently on my driving, and and they're they're great. They're they're really phenomenal. Uh, hearing the stories of how these guys created uh, their their robots or their um, their biotech or or other things. So uh, search for that on our Fall Line Capital website as well. Mm-hmm. I saw that as well, and it's on my list to give it a listen as well. So Scott, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. And to everyone, hope you found some golden nuggets in today's episode. Look for another one next week and feel free to give Scott a holler over at Fall Line Capital. Get a chance. All right. See you, everyone.